anybody fifth grade and under. Um, head on back with Miss Joan. And I'm going to, we have a special privilege this morning as my best friend in the whole entire world, Leroy Miller from Sebring, uh, is going to be giving our message today. Um, tied with Oren, Pastor Oren, I'm sorry. Come on, come on up, Lee. But uh, th- this, is all, this is also a good time. If you do not have a Bible, but you would like one to follow along with the reading, we do have Bibles on the bookshelf in the back. But uh, I'll uh, let him introduce himself as he starts his message. But uh, this guy's the real deal right here. I'm really excited to hear what God has put on his heart for us this morning. Um, so I'm going to take some time to actually pray for the message. Let's pray. Our God and our Father, Lord, we thank you for making yourself clear to us. Lord, you, you haven't made it a mystery as to how to follow you. But what an awesome time in history that we live in to be on the other side of the cross of Jesus Christ. And then also having your completed word. We have an entire council of scripture to address with anything that brings life our way. And Lord, thank you for Lee. Thank you for his commitment to the word. And God, we, we believe that we do not have the power in and of our own words to change hearts, but we believe that you do. So would you use Lee this morning to impact your people? May we not be a people who hear your word and disregard it, but people who hear your word and embrace it. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, amen. Thank you, Ethan. It feels weird when you're, when you're um, I wasn't going to call Ethan my best friend because we're, you know, both grown and have kids now, but I don't know what you call somebody when you're old and you just respect them and you model parts of your life after them. And Ethan and I have got to do, um, how long were we, did we serve? Two years of youth ministry down in Sebring at our uh, Sebring neighborhood campus. And uh, we love Ethan and Emily. And you guys are very blessed, not lucky, you're blessed um, to have them. So I love, I'm glad that I get to be here. I am, I'm Lee. Um, I am from, originally from Ohio, came down to do GCBI, met my beautiful wife. Um, we got married, and here we are many, many moons later, and uh, still happily married, praise God. So um, what I do, I work at GCBI, which is called Great Commission Bible Institute. It's a 10-month program where we start in Genesis, and we run through the Bible as fast as we can go until we end up in Revelation 10 months later, um, and it's an awesome program that if you are interested, it doesn't matter how old you are or how young, well, you can't come until you're like 18, but there's no age limit, there's no cap. Anybody who wants to come, I would say come, uh, because it is a, it's an incredible time. Uh, the word never comes back void, and we just have a great time studying the Bible. So I have gotten to know Orn uh, and Kara down there. They served down there for, for a couple years, came back, stole Ethan from us, so we're still bitter about it, but hopefully one day Ethan comes back down to Sebring. But until then, we're making do with what we have. So I, I'm 25, and I was thinking back. Lacey and I have a saying because we have a two-month-old, and when I was 18 and I first moved down, uh, most of the time, a lot of us, I thought, at least, life was kind of hard, right? I'm out of high school, and I now have to decide how to spend my money, and I have to buy a car, and all those things. But when I got married, life got harder. And then when I had a child, life got harder. When I went into more leadership, life gets harder. We have a saying that we tell each other all the time, when, when life is hard, we say it gets harder but better. It gets harder, but better. Because, because I don't remember what it was like. Anybody who's, who's been married probably agrees with this. Do you remember what it's like before you were married? There, there is no memory of said life, whatever it may have been. Does anybody who has kids remember what it was like before they had kids? There is no memory of said life before a child. 
Even though my child's two months old, I'm, I don't remember. I, I remember Ethan came home from the hospital, and we went over, and it was like two days later, and he's like, I don't remember what it was like without Graham, right? Because life moves on, and we, we have kids, and we have families, and it's good stuff. Uh, but can we just agree that with all those things, life is much more hard than it used to be? Somehow, I wouldn't trade my life, I wouldn't go back to being 18. I have no desire. It was a, I, I just don't, right? Who wants to go when I have my wife at home, and I come home, and I love, I mean, I get to serve at GCBI, I get to serve the Lord. Um, I, I have no desire to be 18 again. I have no desire to be not married again. And I don't have a desire to not have a child again. But all those things make your life harder. And, <clears throat> excuse me, and why, why is it that when life gets harder and things are more difficult and responsibilities are on you, life also somehow gets more beautiful. Life also somehow becomes more meaningful and fulfilling. My job, before I was married, was a way for me to, I don't know, stay busy and make money. My job now is a way for me to provide for my family. There's a difference, right? What, the, what I used to do takes on a whole new meaning when life is harder life gets better. And, and I think we've told each other that a million times. It gets harder, but it gets better. Why is that? And what is it about life that can't just draw out the beautiful things, but it can draw out in my own heart the, the discontentment, the dissatisfaction. It can draw out the unfulfillment in me. It can draw out uh, anger and impatience. It squeezes me to reveal what's really in there? Why is it that that life both has a way of becoming hard and beautiful and hard and ugly? What makes the difference between whether I see my life and whether I have life that I love and appreciate and I can find joy and meaning in and the difference between a life that is full of hurt and chaos and destruction and restlessness? Why is it that all around I get to see, I get a chance to see beauty and creation and love and the things of God and rest and peace? And yet I also look around me and I see death and destruction and chaos and hate and things of death. I've noticed that, especially in my uh, generation, why, when we have more freedom than ever, do we end up more enslaved than ever? We get to pick who we marry, and yet divorce rates go up. We get to pick who we want to be, and yet we're more empty and unsatisfied than we've ever been. We get to decide what we want to do, but we're anxious and depressed and on the edge all the time. We have more freedom than ever, but we're more enslaved than ever. And then, and then I also have an opportunity to read about an announcement of somebody who is sick and has cancer. And when I read that announcement, every update you've written, I've cried on. How can I read that announcement and see life? Why is it that I read about a beautiful family going through a trial and having a hard time, and I, and I tear up not because I'm sad, but because I see something beautiful. I see something that I want. I read... Things like we are not hopeless and we never feel ready or prepared to receive news like this. But God has chosen us in his wisdom to enter a season which our faith is tested. Who, why is that so compelling to me? When I can, when I can see the obvious that there is hurt and it's bad and yet 
in that, I look and I see something beautiful. I see a family clinging to Jesus, to each other, and a light that shines forth in a dark world. And in that disease, there is life. There is something beautiful. Solomon, I think, had it right when he said, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way of death. Its end is the way of death. And I'm also incredibly compelled by Jesus' words when he says things like this. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits what? His soul. Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man in his kingdom. And regardless of your specific uh, theology on, on that, can we not admit there's a striking difference between what Solomon said and what Jesus offers? One is a way that comes natural. One is a way that seems right. One is a way I don't have to work too hard at. I just live my life. One is a way that is easy. One is a way that seems right to me. One is a way I wake up in the morning and I'm going to choose. But it leads to what? It leads to death. There is a way that seems right to a man, but it leads to death. And then I see Jesus in a passage, in a sermon, and he says things like, if you want to live, lay down your life. If you want to uh, uh, live in a way, and if you want to have true life, give up your very life. What a striking difference. And what a kind of a scary difference, if I'm being honest. One is a way that is hard and unnatural. One is a way that seems natural, seems right. And one leads to death, the other leads to life. Hmm. It's not just the idea that it leads to life somewhere, somehow, sometime. It's the idea that there is life to be had now with, with Jesus. So when I look uh, around my, my country and honestly, my community, my, my, the world, and I see all the death and all the hatred and the division and the chaos and the hurt and lives that are in shambles, it hurts. But then I can also go home spend time with my wife, my, my, my family, and see beauty and blessing in community and in church. And in a morning like this morning, where on one hand I sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And on the other hand, I'm saying, holy, holy, Lord God Almighty. We're, we're offered the two. And we see the two. It doesn't take a lot of time for us to just see the two and experience the two, and see them clashing, and also sometimes get to live in a reality of either or. But, but here's the thing, it's, strangely enough, it's, it's not just the actions that are happening. It's not just that over here people are doing something bad, and in here people are doing, it's about more than that, it's about a heart. How do I know? If, if I am in a marriage covenant with my wife, and we have sex, it is incredibly healing, bonding, and, and a good thing. What happens if that takes place outside? The opposite effect, right? I've, how, how do I, it's not just about the action. Even if we just look through our lens, it can't be just about the action. Two parents can easily spank their kid. One does so out of love, and I know you guys all lie and say, this hurts me more than you, or whatever. But, my dad hit me with that one a million times. But, right, two parents can spank. One's done out of anger, frustration, and it leads to shame. 
another parent can spank and it leads to restoration and healing and discipline. Uh, I think often of, of my father-in-law, right? Two people can have a company. One uses it to bless, to, to, to give people a chance, maybe the millionth chance, to allow them to, to take care of their family. Other companies won't hire. One can run all over people, destroy people, all for the gain of something. It's not just about what we do. It's a hard thing. And that is true in our spiritual walk. That's also true in our, in our uh, natural, everyday life. It's not hard to notice the difference between life and death. And that is terrifying to me. Because as hard as it is, as hard as it is for me to somehow muster up the strength to do the right thing, it is in, infinitely more hard for me to bend my heart to the will of God and come before him as a surrendered man. Not just to do what's right, but to be something more. Not just to curb my actions to please those around me, but to bend my will and surrender day after day and moment by moment. That's the hard part. And here's the scary part. If I fail to do so, I am in as much danger of producing death as I am if I don't do anything or do the wrong thing. At least, I think we should consider that. That if I am doing right, but my heart is still not bent to the will of something higher than me, is still hard, is still selfish, I am still producing death. I am still not giving away and breathing life into people. I think we need to, I think that that is the scariest part to me. But we need to, uh, I want to go to our passage, and I don't know, I think this is the first time we're back in the Sermon on the Mount. We're in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7 is where we're going to start. Uh, I'd like to read it real quick. It's very short. Excuse me. Very short. Very direct. But I'd like to read it, and then I want to go back through some of uh, the Old Testament scriptures, see if we can get some context as to um, what Jesus is doing, and see if it'll help illuminate kind of where we're at. And then we can maybe try to get a little bit of application. So first, excuse me, first our passage in Matthew 7, starting in verse 12, he says, In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. For this is the law and the prophets. And I I think uh, the last time Ethan taught, he covered this verse in giving with the gifts. And then we go to verse 13. He says, Enter through the narrow gate. For the gate is wide, and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. What do you notice first about uh, this passage? Is it the two gates, the two roads, two destinations? Or maybe in verse 12, I think something that always intrigues me is when Jesus says this. In everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. And then he he ends with this. For this is the law and the prophets. I don't know about you, but when Jesus sums up the two-thirds of my Bible in a little statement, I'm like, okay, I wouldn't have got that. I don't know when the last time is I was reading uh, Leviticus, and I was like, you know what? Love your neighbor as yourself. I think that's the, that's the goal. Uh, I don't remember the last time I read a lot of things and I came to that conclusion. But I want to just quickly touch on that because I think Jesus reads the, the scriptures sometimes in a, in a different way than I do, with different eyes than I do, and understands them differently than I do. And I desire and I want those eyes. We need the eyes of Jesus to see 
the scriptures for who he is. And so I'm going to pray real quick that we would get those eyes and be able to understand, and then uh, we will continue on. Father, I'm thankful for your word, but I'm also aware of how much I can, I can mess it up. Lord, I pray that you would illuminate your truth, that you would illuminate your word and your life and your light to us, God. We thank you for your word. We pray that it would change us and move us, and we pray that you would come and you would be glorified. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So, Jesus, we already have seen, is giving a sermon. He's giving uh, a new instruction, at least giving a new take on an old instruction of the law. And Ethan touched some on that. But, but where is he geographically? We call it the blank of olives. He's on a mountain, right? Walks up the mountain, sits down, and starts to teach. Now, he's on a mountain, and he, he ends his famous, famous, famous sermon with a strangely familiar way that we've seen before. It's two choices, symbolized by two roads, two trees, and two houses. Where else do we see something like this? I think I read a book called Who Shall Ascend the Mountain of the Lord by Michael Morales, which is an incredible... Basically, I nerded out on mountains in the Bible, and I'm very glad I got to teach this because mountains in the Bible are actually very cool. But I just want to hit a couple quick mountains that take place in the Old, Old, in the Old Testament. And f- the first one is really quickly in uh, the Garden of Eden. So the Garden of Eden in the, in the story of the Bible is a mountain. There's a there's a hill. Ezekiel calls it. Ezekiel talks about when in uh, 28, I think, when, when the king of Tyre was cast out. He said, you were on, you were in Eden. You were on the holy mountain of God. They imagined it as a mountain. And there's a river. And it flows down and it goes out into the earth, bringing blessing to the earth. But we're on a mountain. And there's a river that flows from it. And there's a choice. Genesis 2, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and to tend it, grow some trees and flowers and food and vegetables. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Take, or from any tree of the garden, you may freely eat. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For on that day you eat from it, you will surely die. Now, humor me. For just a second and notice, there's a mountain, there's a choice, there's blessing and curse, or the choice leads to either life or death. There's a mountain, we're in in the place where God is, we're walking with him, there's a choice, eat or don't, and there is a result, life and death. And we all know what happens, obviously Eve well, I'm not going to blame it on Eve. Adam and Eve decide that they are going, they are going to eat. There's, uh, there, and notice, there isn't an immediate, they don't fall over and die. What happens? They're exiled. They're cast away from the mountain. And they head out. And instead of the, the, the earth producing for them, they have to work it. And they have to get down and dirty and plant and work hard and there's death Cain kills Abel and there's destruction and there's unity for all the wrong reasons building the Tower of Babel because in the most real sense in the Bible death is not me falling over whenever I go death is distance and exile from the place of God death is when I'm cast away from the presence of and the life of the one who sustains all of life. And that is what happens. There is a choice, or there's a mountain, there's a choice, there's death. There's also more mountains in the Bible. Noah lands on a mountain, 
Uh, Abraham goes to Mount Moriah. What's the most famous mountain in the Old Testament? Sinai, Carmel, same thing. Uh, there's Mike Morales, again, argues we should see the, the tabernacle as a mountain with the Holy of Holies being the top because that's the place where God resides on earth. There's Mount Zion. And then there's the one we all look forward to is the new Zion, the new mountain of God. Uh, and I want to just, again, quickly focus on and go to Mount Zion. The Israelites, they're living in bondage. You got, I think most of us should, would know the story. Living in, in Egypt, in slavery, and God comes and liberates them. Uh, they, they're brought from exile and tyranny and bondage to the place where they will find and meet and worship God. What does Moses tell Pharaoh? Pharaoh's like, just go worship God three days out. And Moses said, no, we're going to the mountain. We're going to the place where the burning bush happened, where I met God. We're going to the place where God said to go. We're going to the place to meet God. Now, who goes up Mount Sinai? This is cool. Moses, nice. Okay, thank you. Moses goes up, and he gets instruction, and he gets the Ten Commandments and a whole bunch of other laws that most of us, maybe it's just me, skips in our daily devotions, and we and and he comes down and if you want to you can feel free to turn to Deuteronomy 28 because I don't have any slides but this this is one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible Deuteronomy 28 and then we're going to just zip over to Deuteronomy 30 really quick Deuteronomy <clears throat> excuse me 28 now it shall be if you diligently obey I'm in verse 1, by the way. If you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, which I am commanding you today, that the Lord your God will put you, just notice, high above all the nations of the earth. And all these blessings will come to you and reach you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed will you be in the city Blessed will you be in the country. Blessed will be your children, will be the children of your womb, the produce of your ground, the offspring of your animals, the newborn of your herd, and the young of your flock. Verse 7. The Lord will cause your enemies who rise up against you to be, to be defeated by you. They will go out against you one way and flee at your presence seven ways. So they're all going to come nice and united, and they're going to flee at seven completely um, discombobulated. Verse 8, the Lord will command the blessing for you in your barns and in everything that you put your hand to. He will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as his holy people to himself as he swore to you. If you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in his ways, so all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord and they will be afraid of you. And the Lord will give you more than enough prosperity and the children of your womb. So you get the point. There is blessing if you keep the parameter, just like in the garden on the mountain. There is blessing to live in the parameter set by God. Now, obviously he goes on and he also announces the curses. And sadly, sadly, we choose the curse. Again, we replay that sin. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read those blessings, I want that. I want a, I want a life that is blessed from God, unhindered blessing to me, to my kids, to my wife, to my family, to my church. But it doesn't just happen. The desire for it to happen is not enough. How do I know? Because just the Israelites all said, yes, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. Yes, Lord. And what do they do? Well, not that. And what happens? They, again, end up in exile. They end up in death. And don't think, don't think 
that we are not prone to this. I'm talking to me. They knew their Bible better than we do. It was their life. They memorized it because they didn't have papers. I mean, these people knew. They had it in front of them every day, and they still ended in exile, away from the land and the tabernacle and the place of God. And they were far more religious than we were. And isn't it any wonder that we are where we are as a church and as a nation? But it's not even that that bothers me so much. It's that I see it in my own heart. It's my anger, my impatience, my lust, my selfishness, my pride, my greed, my envy, my comfort, my expectations, my wants, my language, my tone, my judging, my inability to bend my heart to the will of God, my lack of faith, my lack of surrender, all things that are clearly communicated in Scripture to bring life and blessing in all things that I struggle with and fail on every day. It's no wonder. It's no wonder. I, I, I work in a school where we study the Word of God and I have trouble with these things. It's no wonder we are where we are because I am where I'm at. We're going to skip. Well, I'll read the curses real quick. In verse 15, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to be careful to follow his commandments, his statutes, which I am commanding you today, these curses will come upon you. And he basically reads out everything that he said would be blessed. And really quick, what does it mean to be cursed by God? <laughs> he went, ooh. It's, a, it's, a, it's not a magic spell. It kind of sounds like it. But... To be cursed by God, I would at least like to propose, is not some, you will never have success in life, no matter what you do. It's the natural consequences of my sin. If I'm going to be a habitual liar, no one's going to trust me. I'm not cursed. If I'm going, as a nation, if we're going to kill millions of babies, we're going to end up with a world in absolute chaos. If... If I'm going to be to cheat on my wife or to beat somebody, beat my kid, I'm not cursed when they leave me. It's the natural consequences of, of my sin. So we see that all around us, obviously. And so go really quickly to Deuteronomy 30. I lied. This is actually my favorite passage, not Deuteronomy 28. Oh, it's so good. Moses is about to die. Well, that's not the good part. <laughs> Moses, Moses is giving his, his like, end all, here's what I want you to know. He's given us all the boring stuff about sacrifices and all that good stuff. But then he says this in verse 15. See, I have placed before you today life and happiness and death and adversity, in that I am commanding you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his commandments, his statutes, and his judgments, so that you may live and become numerous, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land where you are entering to take possession of it. But if your heart turns away and you will not obey but allow yourself to be led astray and you worship other gods and serve them i declare to you today that you will perish verse 19 i call heaven and earth to witness against you today that i have placed before you life and death blessing and the curse so what so choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. How? By loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, by holding close to him, for this is your life and the length of your days, so that you may live in the land which the Lord your 
the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, whoa, where am I? Oh, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob to give them. Wow. That is cool to me. I have set before you a choice. Life and blessing and death and curse. And obviously all of us would say, I want life and blessing. But just like Adam and Eve, just like Israel in the coming chapters chose the curse. And look at what life is. Choose life in order that you may live, you and your descendants. How? By loving the Lord your God, by obeying his voice, and by holding close to him. Being near God, being in the place of God, being in the worship and the presence, that is life. And the opposite is true. When I am exiled in my sin, away from God, that is death in a sense. Away from the author and provider and of life itself. So we, we go, oh goodness, we keep going. How, much time, how long am I allowed to go? Okay, sweet. You're going to be here a while. Uh, I'm just kidding. So we, we, we go and we're off in exile and guys like Jeremiah come and he says, hey, there's coming a new one, a new king, a new kingdom, a new covenant. But he says this time, this time, we're not getting the law that's just on tablets. Where's the law going to be? On our heart. On our heart. We're not coming with just tablets. We're coming with a spirit that will transform your life and change your heart. And in comes Jesus, the one we've been waiting for all this time. Or have we? Because just like the Israelites, we misunderstand, misrepresent, and mislive the ways of Jesus all the time. At least I do. And he comes in and offers a new way, a new covenant. And we get to see that new way in the Sermon on the Mount. When he says, look, it wasn't, it's not just about murder. It's the heart behind it. It's not just about lust. It's the heart behind it. It's not just about what's going on out here. It's also about what's going on in here. Because the Pharisees and the scribes, they had it cleaned up. But the things they were doing were still producing burdened, shackled, dead human beings. Jesus comes and gives us an upside-down kingdom where the greatest must be the least. The first are going to be last. And the blessed ones aren't the ones in power. They're the ones who are being persecuted. He talks about radical generosity. One of my favorite um, passages is, is Matthew 6, and he says... Look at the birds, look at the flowers, and give your stuff away and seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things where, uh, will be added unto you. Instead, we spend our time worrying. We spend our time wondering. We spend our time scurrying around, trying to uh, decide whether to invest in gold or Bitcoin or just your 401k or whatever. And we end up exactly the same as was predicted by God in the garden and by Moses. We end alone, isolated, or anxious, empty, scared people. We're addicted and enslaved. And, and Jesus comes as the new Moses, offering a new way out of bondage, a new exodus back into the presence of God. And look where he does it! On a mountain. I, I love that Matthew does this. In fact, Matthew's book is full of mountains. He's got seven of them. Told you, mountains are, are where it's at. He's got seven of them. And, and he goes uh, 
first, he gets tempted, and then it's in chapter 28, and they correlate. You know what the, you know what the very center mountain of the book is? It's chapter 15. And Jesus is on a mountain. And you know who comes to Jesus on that mountain? Verse 29. Departing from there, Jesus went along the Sea of Galilee and going up on the mountain, he was sitting there. And large crowds came to him, bringing with them, this is good, those who were limping, had impaired limbs, were blind, couldn't talk, and many others, and laid them down at his feet, and he healed them. So the crowd was astonished when they saw those who were unable to speak talking, those with impaired limbs restored, those who were limping around walking, those who were limping, walking around, and those who were blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. Wow. Look who goes up on the mountain this time. It's not just Moses. It's not just the high priest once a year. It's the blame, the blind, the sick, the crippled, all being invited into the presence of life, all being asked to come. And they're put at the feet of Jesus, and he heals them. He gives life. Jesus comes as a new Moses, offering a new instruction that leads to a new exodus and a new covenant that leads to a new law written not on tablets of stone, but on tablets in my heart. Nobody went up the mountain except Moses. Nobody went up the mountain except the high priest. But when Jesus comes, when Jesus comes, everybody's invited. Especially the people who had no shot at getting to the temple. Who had no shot at getting up the mountain. I mean, just look at what God offers. Look at his kingdom. The author of life inviting us inviting us to that mountain where there will be another choice. And yet so many walk in darkness. Why? Because the, the road, the gate is wide and the, and the road is broad that leads to destruction. But the gate is narrow and the path is hard that leads to life. Solomon said it. Jesus said it. And it's crazy because how can an offer be both so beautiful and so terrifying at one time? But it's always been a choice. It's always been a choice. Life and death, blessing and curse. Notice the two options Jesus gives. There's two gates, two roads, and two destinations. There's two choices, two ways of life. And two different results. There's two heart postures, two desires, two qualities of life. Two. That's it. Really quick, let's look at the gates. What's the difference between the gates? There's a big one and a small one. I I um worked with a guy who had a well, I still work with him, but I do something different. We we mowed grass. And there were some people who had gates that apparently were just meant for push mowers to go through the backyard. I don't know if you've ever driven a zero turn, but if you go in, then the deck kind of sticks out. And we somehow got the front wheels in, got the deck like halfway through, but got stuck. So it, uh, we were like, we, we, we were dead set on getting this big mower in there. The gate was not meant for the mower. The gate was meant to walk the stupid push mower in, walk back and forth, do your thing, and then walk that thing back out. But obviously, you're not going to waste time on a push mower. Just get the big mower in there. It took, it took half a day to get this thing unstuck. I have no idea how it happened. But back and forth, in and out, finally just kind of ram it through and hope for the best. 
right? Why? Because the gate wasn't meant to bring big things through. The gate was meant for the push mower. It was a small gate. But to bring a big, bulky, ridiculous lawnmower in was dumb of us. And also, it just didn't work. We had to ease back out and go tell a homeowner, sorry, can't mow your yard today, and all those good things. Why? Because the small backyard was never meant to be mowed with a big mower. It was tiny. And honestly, we got the mower back there one day, and it just made a mess. It was tiny. It was meant to be walked through with our push mower, push mow it. Yes, it's harder. Yes, it's more annoying, but that's what it was for. And it looked better and didn't make a mess. The small gate is intentionally restrictive. Otherwise, we just leave it wide open. You don't want just anything going in there. And I was thinking about that. Isn't that often what we do? Too many of us are trying to get our big mower in the small gate. It's not meant. You don't come. The gate isn't designed for me to bring this and bring that and, and get my wagon and throw my stuff in there and hitch my burdens to it and walk on and waltz on in. It's not meant for that. The gate is narrow. The only thing I get to bring is myself. The only thing I get to bring isn't even just myself, but a surrendered self. And if I don't, I end up like the lawnmower. In and out. That's how a lot of us are. Nope, can't get in. Let me back back out. Let me try to get back in. You walk through. I love how uh, one commentator said, he said, conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, the righteousness of the kingdom, so amply described both in principle and in detail, would be seen to involve self-sacrifice at every step. Multitudes would never face this, but it must be faced, else the consequences will be fatal. This would divide all within the sound of these truths into two classes. The many who will follow the path of ease and self-indulgence, end where it might. And the few who, bent on eternal safety above everything else, take the way that leads to it at whatever cost. This gives occasion to the two opening verses of this application. Enter ye in the straight gate, as if hardly enough to admit one at all. This expresses the difficulty of the first step, involving, as it does, a triumph over all our natural inclinations. The big gate, you can take what you want. You can be who you want. The small gate doesn't allow that. The big gate allows for freedom, for stuff, and for me to just lollygag in. But the small gate doesn't. And you know what's the best place to think about the big gate? Everybody else is doing it. That's where everybody's at. Bringing their big old mowers in there, showing them off. Right? The two roads. One's, one's hard to walk on. One's easy. One feels lonely at times. One forces me to slow down and walk. One is inefficient. The wide one, you can zoom around how you want. The narrow one, you're forced to stay disciplined. The narrow road goes against our logic. The wide road doesn't. If you live in Sebring, 27 should be about 13 more lanes and we'd finally be getting somewhere. The destinations, eternal life, and destruction. Life apart from God, life with God. I would, as I close, I would reiterate what Moses said. I present to you, as Jesus did, life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, Choose life. Jesus said, I came to offer life and offer it abundantly. I have come to draw all men unto me. If the Son of Man be lifted up, he will draw all men unto him. If you don't have life, it is not found in self. It is not found in bringing your toys and your mowers into the gate, it is found in self-sacrifice, surrender to Jesus.
that alone brings life. That alone offers hope. And if you don't feel joy and peace, if the Christian walk to you is not fun and exciting at times at least, I would challenge you. What are the things that you're holding on to? Because Jesus goes through them. And just like Adam and Eve were offered in Eden, and just like Sinai, we are invited to the mountain as a sick and bondaged and lame person, and we're given a choice. Choose life. Choose life. Father, I'm grateful that you are the author of life. God, I know that I didn't hit on much application, Lord, but I pray that these words and the choice would make my heart tender toward you. Father, I pray that you would draw us to repentance. I pray that you would draw us to where we surrender all to you. Empty-handed, Lord, we come into the narrow gate, the hard path and yet the good path, the one that leads to life, true, eternal, amazing life with you, Lord. No one else can offer what you offer. Nothing else satisfies but you, Lord. Thank you for that truth, God. I pray, Father, that you would help me to see and to choose life with you, walking with you each day, each step, each moment, God. Hmm. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for that. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that you are worthy of all that we are. We come to you humbly, and we walk after you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.